1: Welcome, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And we have a fantastic story and a fantastic author for you today, Chris DeRose, who has written The Star-Spangled Scandal, Sex, Murder, and the Trial that Changed America. One incredible story. Chris, how are you doing today? Very well. How are you? Very good. Thank you. I'm hoping you can give a little background on you and also tell our listeners What inspired you to do this story and a little bit about what the story is about? Sure.
0: Well, this is book number four for me. Uh, So I'm a historian, a history lover, just like the people who listen to your show. I'm a lawyer by training, former prosecutor, former senior litigation counsel to the attorney general here in Arizona, former professor of constitutional and international law. And the reason I wrote this story, I mean, as a history lover, I try to write the stories that I'd be interested in reading. And when I was writing my last book, which was called The President's War, Six American Presidents and the Civil War that Divided Them, I was reading the letters and diaries of all the former presidents who were alive on the eve of the Civil War, and they were appropriately focused on all of the dangers facing the nation in 1859 and then all of a sudden, um, all they can talk about, all they care about, is the Sickles matter. Well, what's the Sickles matter? Um, and I started probing into the Sickles case and found one of the greatest stories uh, in American history.
1: You sure did. Uh, the book was a, a page-turner, a fantastic story. I, I I had never heard it, and yet it, it deserves a movie. Can you kind of— I think it does. <laughs> <laughs> can you kind of give our listeners— The storyline.
0: Yeah, well, you have a congressman killing the U.S. attorney, the chief federal prosecutor for Washington, D.C., in front of the White House on a Sunday afternoon. And not just any U.S. attorney, but the son of Francis Scott Key, American royalty, dead in front of the White House on a Sunday afternoon with a sordid affair at the heart of all of it. And that's just where the story starts.
1: You did a fantastic job, I think, with this story in terms of the research and getting the whole story down and the whole story together. How, how hard or easy was it to research and what were your major sources?
0: So in some ways, this was the easiest book I've ever researched in the sense Uh, you know when you're writing about let's say my first book i wrote a book called founding rivals about james madison and james monroe and if you're trying to figure out what happened or what someone was thinking you're lucky if you get a fragment of a letter that sheds any light on what you're trying to find out Uh, that's why i keep promising myself after every book i'm going to do a, a contemporary history with people who are still alive that i can just pick up the phone and call when you are writing about a trial, this this Sickles trial, this murder and the trial that followed it were the most covered events in human history up until this point. And so the difficulty sort of shifted from being too little information to doing triage with tens of thousands of articles that were written about this case and trying to sort through and figure out which of these is going to reveal something new, which one of these reporters noticed something in the courtroom that someone else didn't. Um, so we have a trial transcript, which is very useful. We have every word that was said in court, and of course that's incredibly helpful. Uh, trials are fun to cover for that reason, right? There's all this information that you wouldn't get in a normal history, uh, but it was really it was the first-hand accounts of the reporters who were in the room and of um, you know, the, the lawyers and what they said on the record. Those were the two primary sources that made up this book
1: now as the story goes a sickles daniel sickles congressman had a beautiful young wife and he spent a lot of time out of town and she was having an affair with the son of francis scott key
0: so when he got to washington he realized the way to move up the ladder in the social circles of washington is to throw the best parties yourself then you get to decide who to invite It helps you get invited to other parties. That's the key to working your way up in Washington at this time. And, of course, this is very expensive, right? The house that he leases in Lafayette Square across from the White House, that that takes care of his congressional salary. So these lavish parties, he has to find another way to finance these. And so what he does is he maintains his law practice in New York City, which means that he's away from Washington, D.C. for days and weeks at a time And he actually trusts Barton Key, his friend, he thinks, to escort his wife in public, to check in on his family. Uh, This affair really came as a surprise to him for that reason.
1: It came as a surprise in the form of a note that was handed to him. What were the contents of that note and uh, if they ever found out who wrote that note?
0: So uh, the answer is no. I searched very hard. It was not for lack of trying to figure out who wrote this note. Uh, I worked with a handwriting expert, and uh, we compared samples of possible suspects, um, and no one's handwriting matched. I do have a theory, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. But this letter told Daniel Sickles in excruciating detail that his wife was having an affair with Barton Key and that they had rented a house for the sole purpose of carrying on this affair and told him where to find the house. And so the details were so specific that he couldn't just disregard the letter. He had to try to verify whether it's contents were correct or not. And so he starts an investigation enlists lists one of his friends from New York, um, in staking out this house. And eventually he gets all the proof he needs. And that'll lead, that'll lead to the killing of, of Barton key. Now, um, Desperate as I was to figure out who set this whole story in motion, I will say I have a a suspect in mind. There was a young man who became infatuated with Teresa, and he was stalking her. And he becomes the first person, probably, to learn about this affair, because he's stalking her. And he gets chatty with what he discovers, talks about it at the bar at Willard's Hotel, and ends up getting summoned to Sickles' house where he where he backs down and denies he ever said anything or saw anything. So the, we know the suspect has to be someone who's who's following these people around. So that means she'd have to have had two stalkers and you know just within the same year. And someone who is obsessed with her. But also if you look at the motive, so if someone writes a letter to Daniel Sickles telling him his wife's having an affair, that could be a lot of people. It was speculated that it was a woman who was in love with Key. It was speculated that it was a woman who wanted to, to dethrone Sickles' wife from her position in Washington, D.C. society. Could have just been a disinterested, uh, just a friend of Sickles, trying to give his buddy a heads up. But that person also wrote a letter to Key the same day, warning him that Sickles knew about the affair and to be on guard. So this is really someone trying to get rid of both men. And who would have, you know, who'd have a motivation unless this person is just, you know, they're just like Iago and they're causing destruction for the sake of destruction, which is entirely possible. Then the motive is to, to try to get both men out of the equation. Maybe one kills the other and then the other goes to jail. And then Teresa's, uh, you know, Teresa's available. Like Iago says in Othello, what you know, you know.
1: <laughs> in your book at the beginning of chapter 25, uh, you have a quote in there that, that reads, The town talk is still of the sickle and key affair. Intelligent Washington, living in the hotels or resorting to them, has not yet sprung a new topic. And stupid Washington is, of course, agape. Never was a place more mad for scandal than Washington. That being from the New York Tribune. And how big was this news and how long did it last? How big a media event was it? Did it reach internationally?
0: Yes, it was the biggest in the history of the world up to that point, with no clearly identifiable second. Uh, Its reach was international. There were correspondents from all over the world who were either here covering uh, events in the United States who started writing about this or who came here to cover the case. Um, I found coverage of this in Germany, uh, in Hawaii, which was not then a U.S. territory, in Bermuda, um, in France... And so this, this really was an international story. It had more coverage, more column space, more articles written about it than anything that had come before. And we live in an environment, right, where there's always some story that's the story of the day. And sometimes it can go on for quite a long time, right, like the O.J. Simpson trial. But this was really the first time it happened. This really sets the template for that kind of story that we would be very familiar with today, that scandal, that modern scandal, where every peripheral piece of information and every peripheral person is interviewed and identified, this sort of obsession where the public just can't get enough of the story, this was the first time that that happened, and it was, was aided mightily by the, the spread of the telegraph and the scaling of the telegraph, which, uh, you know, it set new records for telegraph transmission every single day, where more and more stories are being sent further across the United States to update people on the latest development with this scandal. And so we live in this world now uh, where we're scandal-obsessed, media, celebrity trial-obsessed. And I wanted to go back and see where it started. Um, And it started right here in the Sickles case.
1: Explain what happened in the hours and days after Congressman Sickles was handed that note.
0: He has to go and do his job as a congressman. Uh, It's getting close to the end of session. And there are people looking to shut down an important naval base in his district. So he really has to be sharp um, and engaged in his work, even though inside he's distracted, he's concerned. He enlists the help of a man named uh, George Wooldridge, who was a friend of his from Albany. Uh, Wooldridge is a—you could not make Wooldridge up if he didn't exist. Nobody would find the character plausible. He uh, was a Tammany Hall man, a saloon keeper, a brothel keeper, and he decided to start a newspaper. And he realized that the, the real money in having a newspaper was in blackmailing people, not in selling advertising, <laughs> not in selling subscriptions. But, in you know, look, as a bar owner, as a brothel owner, he knew a lot of people's secrets and a lot of people were willing to pay good money to keep those stories out of his, uh, his tabloid paper, uh, well, eventually this got him into trouble. He ended up leaving, going overseas for a while. He shows back up in Albany as the doorkeeper of the assembly, and he becomes friends with Daniel Sickles. And while Sickles goes to Congress, he knows the value of having your friends nearby. He gets him a job in the House map room as a clerk. And so he puts Wooldridge on the case. Wooldridge goes to the neighborhood. He's doing an investigation, he's knocking on doors, he's interviewing people. Hey, do you see a man and a woman going in and out of that house? And of course, it's the only thing the people in this neighborhood care about. They're obsessed with this story, right? This is a poor, working-class neighborhood north of the White House, and you have these people in really fine clothes showing up in this house for a couple hours at a time. A it doesn't a look good. doesn't look good, yeah. and so it's really it's the, the talk of the neighborhood. And... While everyone can clearly identify Key as the man, the woman wears a veil. And he's eventually able to figure out the details, some of the patterns, unique patterns on this woman's veil. And they match clothing that Teresa owns. And so Sickles knows for sure that the letter is true. He confronts his wife. She confesses to him. She writes out a confession at his behest, detailing her affair with this man. And then he's, it's Sunday, he's thinking what to do, he's been up all night, he uh, has his friends come over, they're trying to talk him off a ledge, they say, you know, just go send her back to New York, arrange for a quiet divorce, nobody will know what happened. He says, oh no, uh, everyone in town knows about this, looks like I'm the last one to know. And he's trying to figure out what to do, and then he shows up in Lafayette Square, and he's waving a handkerchief at the house, having no clue that the gig is up, that Sickles knows. And he's waving his handkerchief at Sickles' house as his friends are trying to talk Sickles down off
1: a ledge. And that's the signal and that he would that he would send to Sickles' wife, the exactly handkerchief. Exactly right.
0: Yep, that was the signal so that Teresa Pretty, pretty to flagrant he'd stand house.
1: outside the window in Lafayette Square, just wave that handkerchief till she finds a way to leave her residence and go meet him.
0: Yeah, they were shockingly indiscreet for, for an affair where they, they nearly got caught once before, about a year earlier, and they knew the consequences of being found out for all of them, and yet they were so
1: incredibly reckless
0: with what they were doing, it's, it's staggering.
1: So Sickles, he's had a bad day. He's had a bad day. And he's, and he sees Key out there, and he, he grabs his coat and puts a gun in his pocket and heads on out. And what happens then?
0: At least three guns. <laughs> um, finds him in Lafayette Square and opens fire on him. Not a good day for Key either. Um, so it's actually, depending on which witness testimony is closer to the mark, this was going on for a while. It took Sickles multiple shots. Some shots he hit him, but didn't wound him badly. Or he hit him and he didn't wound him badly enough. There were shots that misfired. I mean, he was actually fortunate in that he brought at least three guns with him because he had terrible luck with, um, you know, misfires, malfunctioning guns, guns that didn't hit their target. Um, And so it takes two. the whole confrontation takes a minute to two minutes. It's actually quite long uh, for for something like this. And, um, you know, Sickles goes to turn himself in at the home of the attorney general, which is, I guess, what you do when you're a congressman and you've just killed someone in D.C.,
1: What's interesting, there's a lot of interesting parts of this book, but you can just picture this as the news of the murder in broad daylight gets out, and it hits national and then international, and now you've got a very angry husband who is taking revenge upon his wife's lover. This is, a, this is a situation common to the world, to every human being, and therefore takes a place of conversation for everyone who hears this. Uh, was he right in doing what he did? Well, no, you're not allowed to murder someone. But yeah, look what what was happening. And this is being discussed and discussed and discussed. And the way you covered this in this book of the kind of media attention that it got, which was world record-breaking, and how it really made the wire uh, of the day, the telegraph, and probably made a lot of papers as well, is really well done. Then it goes to trial. And that... Again, this had people buzzing. This whole process took what, about a year to work itself out?
0: Actually, you know, you could go to trial very quickly in those days. And so you've got uh, a killing in February, and you've got a trial that begins in April. And in this era, you could have a homicide trial in an afternoon, uh, which would be unheard of today. But this particular homicide trial is going to take 20 days. Uh, It takes them three days just to put together a jury. Because so many people have read stories or knew people who were involved and they have opinions. And so it takes them three days just to get an impartial jury. And then you have uh, all kinds of witnesses who come in, tons of argument from the lawyers. And there's an all-star team of lawyers in this courtroom trying this case, probably the, the most legal talent that had ever been in one courtroom at a time at that point. Um, and so it's really, really quite an incredible case. But really, it goes on for about four months. The whole thing start to finish. And then, you know, the country is not ready to let it go. So there's a, there's a sickles play about the killing that goes on every night. Um, you know, people are trying to find ways to keep the story current and keep the story alive. And then when there's nothing, when they've bled it dry, it's time to go look for the next scandal, right? It's time to go look for the next story.
1: The men who were representing... Sickles did an absolutely great job at defending him. Which one of his attorneys do you think was the one most responsible for obtaining the verdict that they did?
0: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I think to a large degree, you know, it's funny, you know, as lawyers, and I'm a lawyer by training, um, you always want to take credit for your victories. But the truth is, you know, judges are smart people. Usually you win the ones you're supposed to win and you lose the ones you're supposed to lose. And sort of the ones that fall in between, we call that within the margin of advocacy, right? You were the lawyer who actually made the difference here. You came up with an argument or piece of evidence, something. In this case, it's interesting because I think the jury had a certain feeling about what they wanted to do and they went ahead with that. So it's actually kind of interesting to see how this case would have played out with less legal talent. It might have played out the same way. But you know you have John Graham, who gives that incredible opening statement. It takes place over a matter of days. You know You have Brady, who is very polite and very good at getting what he needed out of witnesses, particularly witnesses for the other side. You have uh, Edwin Stanton, who is um, you know, maybe not the most personable guy, not known as sort of a warm, Um, engaging figure for the jury but is really a master on the legal argument you had a couple of the unsung heroes in the case were some of the local attorneys who focused on jury selection and figuring out everything they could about the people who were being put on the jury maybe that's actually the most important now that that you've asked me to think about this it's an interesting question maybe it's the lawyers that worked on jury selection um, and found out everything they could about the members of the jury and and you know knew when to use their what we call peremptory strikes where you can remove a potential juror for for no reason or any reason and 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 perhaps those were the perhaps those were the lawyers who got the least attention but maybe did sickles the most good because i think ultimately this is a matter of a jury working working its
1: will would it be fair to call it the trial of the century Yeah,
0: I think I mean, I think it's definitely fair to call this the trial of the century, maybe the trial of any century. I still think (laughs) with all the competition it's had since uh, in the form of, say, O.J. Simpson or uh, right here in Arizona, Jody Arias. You know, we have these big trials that the country gets obsessed over. But I think 150 years later, the Sickles trial still holds its own in terms of drama, in terms of who is showing up as witnesses Um, It's still this incredible story that I think is is maybe untouchable.
1: Without giving away the verdict, why don't you share with our listeners what the parameters were for the decision that came, how it was set up, and what was the unwritten law?
0: Well, the defense argued several things. They said, first, you really should let him go because this guy was having an affair with his wife. Right. It's not a legal argument. It's not based in the law. It's not found in any statute or court ruling. But they said, look, this really should be a defense to homicide that this guy's having an affair with your wife. But if you're not persuaded by that, look, there was a gun we found at the crime scene. That gun didn't match one of the balls that was taken out of Key. And so maybe that was Key's gun. Maybe Sickles was defending himself. But uh, if you also find that argument unavailing, then they argued that Daniel Sickles was temporarily insane when he packed three guns into a trench coat on an unseasonably warm February day and walked out into Lafayette Square and gunned down the U.S. attorney. So those are the arguments for the defense. That's the framework that the jury has to consider um, going into their deliberations.
1: The defense used the insanity defense. Is that still used today in court?
0: Still used uh, every day somewhere in America.
1: And how effective is it?
0: Uh, not very effective. So what you've had throughout time is you've had pseudoscience being used to justify, back up these claims of temporary insanity, insanity, to try to get people off of crimes. And so they sort of had a high point. And legislatures started sort of hemming in the availability of this defense, trying to restrict it to credible scientific claims and theories. Um, and so it's been less and less effective uh, as, as time goes by. So it sort of waxes and wanes as a, as a
1: defense. Just out of curiosity, if this situation happened today, how would it be tried differently and would certain things have been not admissible that were admissible then?
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, in fact, one of, the, one of the recent reviews I just saw online was from a judge who was talking about how he couldn't stop thinking about how he would have ruled on the admission of evidence. And so I think uh, a couple of things. It's um, interesting, you know, the most contentious evidence in the trial is evidence of the affair. And so the prosecution or the, I'm sorry, the defense wants evidence of the affair to come in to make Key look like a bad guy. Right? It's easier to let someone go for a crime if they killed a, a guy who's, quote-unquote, a bad guy. Um, so, so they're trying to get the evidence in of the affair. Prosecution is trying to keep it out as irrelevant. It's actually kind of interesting. Today, since we no longer recognize killing your wife's lover as a defense to a crime, uh, the prosecution would probably be the one introducing evidence of the affair to prove the motive, to prove that Sickles had the motive and killed him on purpose. You know, he thought about it. He knew about it. He thought about it. There's no temporary insanity. He had time to process it. So that actually probably would have been the prosecution trying to get that evidence in. Uh, No judge in America would let you make an argument to a jury that a homicide was justified based on uh, the person having an affair with your wife. That simply wouldn't be admissible. Certainly spurious self-defense arguments. We see that kind of thing all the time. Like, well, he had to... He's really just defending himself. Um, So you still see those defenses quite often. What you would have seen was uh, scientific evidence. You would have seen a doctor or psychiatrist testifying about how Daniel Sickles could have been temporarily insane. And then you would have had a witness for the state who would also have been a psychiatrist who would have testified to the, the contrary point that there's... No evidence that he was temporarily insane here. And look at all the things he did deliberately, you know, putting on his trench coat, packing all these guns um, and walking for, you know, is it two, I've done the walk. It's like a two minute walk across Lafayette Square. You know, he had time to, to think about what he was doing. Um, and so you would have seen more forensic evidence. But otherwise, the trial uh, might have played out very, sim- very similar way.
1: The attorneys Stanton and Brady were were both excellent I was really impressed with the job that Mr. James T. Brady did. I thought it was just spellbinding in terms of, of the opportunity he had to talk to the people of the jury. Could you describe Brady and what his background was and also uh, give your take on, on how, the kind of job he did?
0: Yeah, I was fascinated by James Brady. I didn't know him before this. So it goes to show you how how we remember people in history because Brady was probably the best-known lawyer in the United States in 1859. He was certainly the best-known lawyer in New York City. Uh, In fact, he was a recognizable figure on the streets of New York, uh, a celebrity in his own right. He was someone who could win. I mean, today it's considered a huge victory if a defense lawyer is ever able to acquit someone in a homicide case. But uh, Brady won acquittal after acquittal. Uh, in, in homicide cases, almost never lost. You know, the kind of guy who could say confidently to a street urchin who comes in and begs him to help her brother, says they're going to help my brother, someone who can look at her confidently and say, no, they're not going to hang your brother, um, knowing that they had, the, they had such legal, legal powers at their command that they could convince the jury to let someone go. And so he's a brilliant lawyer, very gentle personality. He was known for being very polite with witnesses, it's a famous story about him stopping and getting a witness a glass of water when they were coughing. And after they drank the water, they basically said everything he wanted him to, them to say on the stand, even though it was cross-examination. Um, so he was a sort of kill him with kindness gentle demeanor, not really what you associate with New York lawyers today. And he was a champion of the Irish for his people, other marginalized people. You know, he defended the Jewish community in New York uh, against the Sabbath closing laws because if you're a Jewish merchant, that means you know, Sunday closing law means you're closed Saturday and Sunday. He always stuck up for you know, marginalized people, and um, he's, just, he's just a fantastic lawyer, associated with many great cases. It's really a shame that we have no room in our, our collective memory, in our history, for people like James Brady, who are just incredibly good lawyers, but are not remembered today.
1: If you don't mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote a section from your book. And this is, the, sure. this is from the address of Mr. James T. Brady for the defense. Think how on that Sunday morning he made this exhibition to which the witnesses have referred, when he saw Mr. Key with his opera glass for inspection or for spying, with his handkerchief to make the adulterous signal, and with the keys in his pocket of the house on 15th Street, to which he was about to take Mrs. Sickles at that moment, if he could obtain her person. The realization of all these facts were pressing down with terrific weight on Mr. Sickles' mind, heart, and soul. Thus meeting Mr. Key and understanding thoroughly the vile purpose of his heart was not to shoot him. I asked my learned brother to tell me what he was to do. I would like to ask all assembled humanity what he was to do. To bid him good morning? To pass him silently? To avert his eyes? Daniel E. Sickles, a man of unblenching and unvaried courage, as I know from the past associations of our lives, let Philip Barton Key believe that he could not only seduce his wife, but cow him? If he had done anything more or less than became a man under these circumstances, whatever may have been the intimacy of our past relations, I would have been willing to see him die the most ignominious death before I would venture to raise anything in his behalf." but a prayer to heaven for the salvation which, after death, might come. Hear it, men of the universe! Hear it, men of the United States! It is claimed that a man is not permitted by law to do anything for the protection and vindication of his honor. He can have the greatest affront put upon his right and have the relations between himself and his wife violated, made valueless to him by the ruthless hand of the adulterer. He can have his name made a byword, and a reproach and can have his wife reduced to a thing of shame and cannot raise his hand to prevent all this? Just powerful, powerful stuff.
0: You know, it's like all these guys talk like they're out of Shakespeare or something. It's
1: really <laughs> incredible
0: to, and a pleasure to hear these people talk and speak and write. I mean, they really spoke with a precision and a fluency that you just don't see today.
1: There was a lot more emphasis put on speaking and writing back in those days for sure, uh, for sure. i know because a, a couple of my podcasts deal with classic literature so it, and i i yeah. love i love to read it and to and to share it with people and we get a lot of appreciative replies as a result i'm sure yeah, yeah. my wife is one who says always write always write for you and i don't follow it anywhere near <laughs> as well as she does but the the family loves to receive mail for her because it's handwritten. And it means a lot. And we hear that it all really the time. really
0: is underrated. really is an underrated thing today to receive a handwritten note from someone.
1: And I know I'm getting off the subject, but uh, yeah. I, I want to compliment you on this book, uh, Chris, The Star-Spangled, oh, Sp- thank you. Star-Spangled Scandal. I thought the research on it was great. The story, just a gem uh, picked out of nowhere that I think most people are going to say, I had no idea.
0: And That's the goal. <laughs>
1: And, and you reached it. You did, you did extremely, Thank extremely you. well. Do you have anything else on the radar right now in terms of uh, books?
0: I do. So I am in the last stages of writing a book about another extraordinary event in American history that very few people know about. It is popularly known as the Battle of Athens. It is yes. about a group of veterans who came home from World War II and found that their county was in the grips of a corrupt political machine. And they said to themselves, okay, this is bad, but it's America. We'll form a ticket, bipartisan, GI, all-veteran ticket, and we'll run these guys out of town in an election. Well, there hadn't been any fair elections in that county for some time, certainly not during the war years, and the machine wasn't about to go quietly. And so on election day, it's clear they're going to steal the election. Voters are intimidated. GI poll watchers who are there to safeguard the integrity of the election are uh, arrested, removed, held at gunpoint, in one case put in the hospital. Uh, One voter is shot for trying to vote the GI ticket. And then at the end of the day, the sheriff takes three of the ballot boxes um, and puts them under guard, two of them in the jail. And... A small group of these G.I.s said, look, what do we risk our lives for? These guys are going to steal the election from us. What are we going to do about it? And about 20 of these G.I.s got in a six-hour firefight with the men inside the jail and overthrew the county government of McMinn County, Tennessee, and had a public counting of the ballots. And then turned power over to the winners, which happened to be the GI ticket by a large margin. So it's <laughs> one of the most incredible stories in American history. I agree. In it's fact, only
1: the... <laughs> it's in our know? archives at 1, 1001 second, Heroes. So that'll be a teaser for those uh, as they wait for your book to come oh, out.
0: Marvelous. marvelous. Yeah, it's, um, it's really it's the only successful revolution on American soil except for the one you know about.
1: Yeah, that's and right. Very
0: little has been written very little has been written about it, but there's quite a lot of interest. And so I found all kinds of great things. Still I'm finding things and looking forward to sharing that story with the world.
1: Yeah, and that took place uh, just as the GIs were returning from World War II. So a lot of these guys were tough cookies who weren't going to put up with the same stuff they'd been putting up in the past. And when they came up against a uh, crooked town sure. and a crooked sheriff and a crooked government, these guys weren't going to back down.
0: They weren't. At least a few of them didn't. It is kind of amazing how even when the chips are down and even when these guys have been through so much, how few of them actually show up to do the fighting, you know, when when it all comes down to it. It really is an extraordinary tale of the greatest generation and their bravery and what they were capable of.
1: Well, Chris, thank you so much for being with us today and make sure you get in touch with us. Have your publisher, publishing agent, get in touch with us uh, when you release that book, because I'd love to have a chance to read it and to talk to you guys and to talk to our listeners about it. Thank you for this book, uh, The Star-Spangled Scandal, and how can our listeners find this book and how can they get in touch with you?
0: You can find it wherever books are sold, Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books, Books a Million. You can uh, connect with me at com. so that's C-H-R-I-S-D-E-R-O-S-E, books.com, and I'll be sure to get in touch with you. I would love to do this again. This has been a great interview. It's been a lot of fun for me.
1: Chris, thank you so much, and good luck to you on everything going forward, and we'll be looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.